you're in grades six to eight, this is your chance to head off to amazing teaching with the youth ministry team, student ministry team. <laughs> trying to learn to say that instead. I want to just say, um, I'll talk about what I'm going to talk about in a second, but the next two weeks at Hillcrest are going to be awesome. Um, just quickly, Danny DeLong, Danny and Alicia DeLong are coming back from the Middle East, and they're going to be here next Sunday to share with us. Uh, how many of you know Danny and Alicia DeLong? Anyone know them at all? Okay, we've got some in the house. Uh, Danny is a very engaging speaker. He's really a great communicator, and they're living an on-the-edge adventure for God. And I think it's going to be really exciting to hear from them uh, next week. The week after that, uh, Barrett and Bridget Crop are going to be here. Anyone know Barrett and Bridget Crop? Okay, a few more, right? They're, they're Hillcrest people. He used to be the chaplain for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And then God called him up to Trinity Western University, and he leads the hockey teams out there. And, uh, but it's not like he's a missionary, He's a missionary in the sports world, and, uh, you know, last time he was here, it, we were fresh off the heartache of the Humboldt Bronco disaster, and uh, he came and shared some pretty powerful stuff. How do you remember, does anyone remember that when he was here last? He, pre- he shared some pretty powerful stuff. I said, just get up and share, and then I'll preach afterwards, and I was like, I will never do that again. Just go for it, Barrett, because he has incredible stuff, and it's such an encouragement. So these next two weeks are going to be super encouraging to your faith. you want to come out for both of them. Now, this week, we're in an ongoing series in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most iconic teaching, and uh, it often gets quoted by people, and, uh, it's, and we're just working our way through it. And today I get to teach out of Matthew 5, 27 to 30. So if you want to turn in your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 5, 27 to 30. For a lot of years, I've done premarital counseling with couples, and I'm trying to get out of the game. I'm trying to get uh, Kurt and Chris to do all of it so I can move on and do other stuff. But every now and again, I get pulled in because I have 15 years of youth ministry, and that means I have a lot of youth kids who want me to marry them, and so, oh, I feel obligated. So I do. I love them, but I'm trying to get out of it. Let me tell you about one thing I do in premarital counseling. Young couples are really, most of them anyhow, are really idealistic. I mean, they are wonderful to be around. They're so in love. You just feel the warmth and the attraction between them when you're in their presence. It's really cool. And you know what? I often throw a big wet blanket on top of that as a premarital counselor. <laughs> in fact, I think it's one of the things you're supposed to do as a premarital counselor. And so it often goes like this. I often say, you guys, you guys really love each other, don't you? And they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, we really love each other. I'm so lucky I get to marry her. Oh, I'm so lucky I get to marry him. I'm like, yes, you guys are lucky, that's awesome. Can I just ask you a question? They're like, oh, anything, just if it's about us, for sure, you know. (laughs) What will you do if someday down the road you start to feel the same kind of attraction you feel right now towards each other except for it's towards somebody else? You know what they say sometimes? That will never happen. Or that 
won't happen, will it? Is that a thing? So that's my job. Idealism comes to premarital counseling to die. (laughs) That won't happen. I can't imagine it happening. I could never be attracted to someone other than my husband or my wife. I've been married for 20 years. In 20 years, you can have a wonderful adventure. And I think Marty and I have had a wonderful adventure of being married together. But some of the idealism that you have when you're young, it gets tempered a little bit. There's a little more nuance to the journey of marriage together. And again, we've had a wonderful marriage. But you get to realize along the way that just because at the beginning you felt like you had the charmed life, you encounter things you never thought you'd encounter along the way. And when they come up, it's a gut check every time. Gary, a man named Gary Newman, he wrote, um, he wrote a book called The Truth About Cheating. And he said that nearly 70% of men who had an affair thought that they would never do such a thing. Further on, those who, there was a statement that so many men said when they were young and idealistic. I would never cheat on my spouse. When they studied relationships about who cheated and who didn't cheat, they found that this statement was actually dangerous. That people who said, I'll never cheat on my spouse, were actually more likely. Well, is that a... It's a bit of a surprise, eh? In fact, they were at an exponentially greater risk of actually having an affair later in life. And I think there's a spiritual component to this, a very big spiritual component. I think Satan would love for you to believe that you're invulnerable to some category of sin. And then you just stop being protecting in that area. You stop being careful in that area. You stop paying attention. Jeremiah 17.9 puts it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things. I love the one translation says, and desperately sick. (laughs) The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Or Robert Murray McShane, he once wrote, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Kurt took that seed analogy a few weeks ago when he was... uh, doing the second message in this series, and he described it as the acorn of evil, that within an acorn is the potential of a great tree and actually of a great forest of trees. And if it's an acorn of evil, then that's, you know, that's not a good forest that you want growing. So just like premarital counseling, I've already put a wet blanket on this service because it's my job. It's my job, guys. I don't want something terrible to happen in your life. So there's moments where you need, we need wake-up calls in our lives. And Jesus brings an incredible wake-up call in Matthew 5, 27 to 30. He's describing, again, what it's going to be like in his kingdom. If people uh, um, adopt Jesus as their leader, as their Lord, and he's their king who has the right to command their obedience and their behavior, what's that going to be like living in that kingdom? 
what are the rules? What does Jesus expect out of people? And here's some of Jesus' expectations in the area of, um, of this whole area. We'll, we'll just read it and we'll go on. It says, Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow, this is some potent stuff. Jesus, what a wet blanket. We just came to hear some really encouraging preaching. You know, that love stuff you always talk about. But you know more about the human heart than we do, and so we're going to listen. So the first verse says, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, last week I told you that when, when they say, you heard it was said, they're mostly talking about the commentary on the Scripture. So there was the Scripture. Otherwise, it would say, it is written. But you have heard it said is the commentary on the Bible. So there'd be things in the Old Testament that were written, and then you'd have uh, scribes and teachers of the Old Testament who'd come along and they'd do their commentary. And sometimes their commentary was really helpful and good. And sometimes their commentary was really off base and needed to be corrected, and Jesus corrected a bunch of it, right? But in this case, we're basically talking about One of the well-known verses in the Old Testament, we're talking about uh, the seventh of the Ten Commandments. So Exodus 20, 14, or Exodus 20 has the Ten Commandments in it, but here's the seventh one. You shall not commit adultery. So you not only have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, it's also written. It's in the Old Testament. It's a command, a good command given to the Israelites of God's expectations in this area. So this is something that You don't say, oh, well, the Old Testament is done. We don't follow that anymore. You see this repeated in the New Testament, that this is important. Uh, One place where you really see it is is in the instructions for leaders in the church. So 1 Timothy 3.2 says, Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So there's a whole list of qualifications to be an overseer, one who, who, who cares for the flock of the church, and really is, is looking out for people's souls. Well, they got to be in a healthy place. And one of, the, one of the items of being healthy is they need to be faithful to their wife. They need to be faithful to their wife. So you shall not commit adultery. In the New Testament, turns into be faithful in your marital relationship. In fact, now you might say, oh, good. So leaders got to do that in the church? I just won't sign up for leadership. That's great. So we just need seven marriages in the church where they're faithful. No, the intention of leaders that are faithful is because leaders are influencers and they multiply themselves. And the Christian church is a multiplying movement, right? It's, you know, radically, even in the last hundred years, we've seen that all over the globe. It's a multiplying movement. So what's in the leadership ends up showing up in those who follow. So this is God's heart for every Christian, that they be faithful in their marriage, But leaders model it so that people can say, oh, that's what it looks like. Oh, I'd like a marriage like that. 
oh, wow, I see how they sacrifice for each other. I see how they're, uh, they, they're, they're faithful to each other. I, I see how they're committed. Whoa, okay. I, I'd like to be, I like it like that. I'd like to have a relationship like that. You, so many couples in premarital counseling, I ask, tell me some of the marriages you'd like your marriage to be like. I'm shocked at how many of them are stumped. Like actually don't have an answer to that question. In the Christian church, now I do weddings of, you know, unbelievers and sometimes I do weddings of unbelievers, right? So sometimes they're not in the church, so I can't blame the church for that. But sometimes they are, and then I'm like, wow, we got to help them to look, but we also got to have models for them to see. And I, I think those models are out there. I could give you a huge list of people whose marriages I'd love our marriage to be like, people who are farther ahead than us, more than 20 years, and I go, well, if we could have a marriage like their marriage at 30, 40, 50 years, whoa, please, Lord, let's have that. That would be awesome, right? So maybe they just aren't looking yet. And, you know, idealistic young people sometimes aren't looking outside of themselves as much as they could be. So in the New Testament, faithful to his wife is sort of the phrase that shows up for the leadership. So God wants leaders in the church to model this so that others can have an example to look to, so they can aspire to become leaders in this area too. So if you're married or intend to be married at some point in your life, start looking. Who, who's modeling what it looks like to be a godly married person and faithful in their relationship? And if you're single, then look to examples of godly single people, right? I, you're... I've often told you, you know, if you do the math, you realize you're going to be single probably a lot of your life, right? So if you get married at 25 and your spouse dies at 75 and you live to 90, 40 out of 90 years you'll be single. So you should have a game plan for both. Even if your plan A is to be married, have a game plan for singleness. To enjoy it, to live it all out for God, and, uh, and to make the most of it. Right? I was 27 when I got married. So I had a few years in there where all my peers were married, and I wasn't. And I was like, because I went to Bible college. They all get married young there, right? So all my peers were like married off. And I was like, hey, wasn't I supposed to go to Bible college and get a wife automatically? Like, wasn't that, I, I didn't, I missed, I wasn't very good at classes either. So I wasn't, you know, I, <laughs> there's a lot of things I, I could have done better in, but. Uh, <laughs> I haven't got any money back, I could tell you that. Anyhow, well worth going to Bible college, I'll say that. But we, we need examples of godly married people and godly singles in the church. And we need alert enough younger people to be able to look and say, wow, if I'm going to live as a single person, I want to live like them. Because they're dedicated to the Lord, they're committed to him, they're all out for him. Or if I'm going to live as a married person, I'm going to live, want to live like them because they're dedicated to the Lord. They're also committed to each other and they're faithful. And uh, I can see that God is working in their lives through their marriage. So I want to go to the next phrase. It's it. So, so we got it, right? Don't commit adultery. Be faithful. Be an example to others. But verse 28 takes it way further. It says, but I tell you, right? You've been told you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone... Who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa. 
Now you say, Jesus is just taking the teachings of the Old Testament and then he's adding to it. Not really. Not really. That's what I've always believed about this for years. But now I'm, as I'm sort of studying it more, I'm realizing that Jesus is taking the teachings of the New Testament and he's bringing it together. Because the seventh commandment says you should not commit adultery. But what does the tenth commandment say? Let's read it. The tenth commandment, Exodus twenty seventeen says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then it goes on to other things you should not covet. Wow. Just three commandments later from the don't commit adultery, don't, no adulterous actions, comes this no adulterous thoughts. You shall not covet. So this is what I think Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And there's people in the, room, in the crowd who are like, that's right. I haven't committed adultery. I'm feeling pretty good right now. Thank you, Jesus, for affirming the way I live. And uh, I know there are others around who are not as holy as I am. Now, this is often what happens for us, isn't it? It happens in me. I'm sure it probably happens in all of us. Is that there's a tendency to be smug when we feel like that our performance is pretty hot. And I love how Jesus just uh, makes it so that everybody has to be humble. Because this, this second part, for him to not just say the seventh commandment, to, but to go to the tenth commandment as well. It's the seventh commandment that many people have managed to obey. Yet at the same time, the tenth commandment, you find much more people saying, oh, oh, I'm not perfect. Oh, I don't measure up. Oh, I've crossed lines that I'm actually quite embarrassed about. And so, Jesus doesn't want anyone in the, in the crowd to be like, oh God, you're so lucky to have me. You're so lucky. In fact, there's a story about that. Maybe I'll grab it out of my notes here. See if I can find it real quick. Jesus tells this story. Oh man, too many notes. Steve, what are you doing? Okay, I'm going to just have to tell it in two more flips of the page. Can anyone guess which story I'm going to tell? The Pharisee and the tax collector, they go to the temple to pray. It's in my notes somewhere. And they go to pray, and the Pharisee says, Oh, Lord. Now he sees the tax collector. Pharisees, outwardly righteous. Don't commit adultery. Do all the right things. They, if they had Facebook, they would be virtue signaling like crazy. And then tax collector betrayed his people, is living for money and greed. He's sided with the Romans against Israel. You know, the kind of people you wouldn't cross the street to help because they're terrible. So here he goes, oh, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like that tax collector. <laughs> That's smug. That's smug. We can all be there, by the way. And over here, he's saying, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, one of those prayers got answered. One of those guys went home 
with God recognizing him. And it wasn't this guy. So we got to guard against being smug. Even if we've maybe not committed adultery, we got to really take seriously what God says about the adultery of the heart. So all of us should be saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, when it comes to talking about sexuality, and we talk about it here at Hillcrest and every now and again, we just talk about it because it's, guess what, our world is talking about it all the time. I mean, the amount we talk about it is chump change compared to the amount it's being talked about every day, right? Or, or, or represented every day, right? So you're, a, you're probably taking in a constant stream of lies about your sexuality and about sexuality, period. I don't know what the rate would be, but it's an enormous imbalance. So if you ever say, oh, man, they're talking about sex again at Hillcrest, guess what? We're not even touching the imbalance in any way. But you might hear things at church that you won't hear anywhere else. So you should probably keep coming to church, and even when we're talking about sex, because you're not going to hear it anywhere else, right? I just, you know, so every time I have someone say, oh, can we talk about sex a little less? I'm like, okay, you just want one side to talk? I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that'll be good. But we don't talk about it tons. Just, I'm just saying. Every one of us is broken in our sexuality because of our sinful nature. That's, mean, that's our, our inborn inheritance from the sinfulness of Adam and Eve is that we naturally go our own way, right? Uh, people make a big deal about the 1960s, the sexual revolution, when people decided they would go their own way in regards to sexuality. Like, why can't you just have sex with anyone you please to have sex with? And people are following that. And that's still, it's sort of like that's still unspooling the reality of some of those thinking and decisions. And so we haven't seen the end of that yet. We're still seeing like another turn every few years, another turn, another turn. Whereas, whereas people are like, there, there's no boundaries? Well, let's try this. Oh, there's really no boundaries? Well, let's do this. And after a while, they get lost in it. It's like, I, I'm not really satisfied, I'm not really happy, but I'm going to keep experimenting because maybe I'll finally find the thing that will work for me. And Christians are back at square one and we're saying, God created boundaries. He created a really good design for sex that is meant to be within marriage. It's meant to be like a, a relational and spiritual and emotional glue to hold your relationship together. I mean, it's not the only thing, but it's part of it. It's, it's wonderful. It's created to, for children to be born. That's a big part of it, right? You know, you can read through the scripture, all the things it's for. It's meant to be for life. That's, the, that's what God desires, right? It's also a picture of Jesus and the church or God and his people. And God uses it all the way through the Bible. That metaphor is used again and again. Here's God in a relationship with people, with human people. And in the Old Testament, you see it in a relationship with Israel because that's how he's showing himself to the world. And then in the New Testament, it's through the church, which is not one nation. It's a multi-ethnic uh, uh, group of people that fills every nation, ideally. That's God's design. So when you're a husband and wife, and you're committed faithfully to one another, you're say, as a Christian, you're saying something about who God is. You're saying that God commits faithfully to his people. Now, 
The Old Testament is, is like the greatest story of unfaithfulness you ever read. As you go through it, you see God is faithful, the people are unfaithful. But then they get in so, as they're unfaithful and it gets them in so much trouble, they come back. And God's still there. And they are unfaithful and return and unfaithful and return and unfaithful and return. And you read that story and you say, what spouse would ever put up with that? It doesn't mean that there's isn't judgment involved. It isn't that, you know, God holds their feet to the fire at times. It isn't that that doesn't happen. But God is way more merciful in the Old Testament than you and I are. It's incredible. So all of us are broken in our sexuality and our sin. And I think that's just really important to keep reminding ourselves about. Because you might hear of someone who's, you know, following sort of a... Uh, some sort of path, and you say, boy, that's really deviant, or that's really perverse, or I can't believe that. But just recognize, they're not the only ones struggling in this area. You and I are too. Now, it might not be that same type of struggle, but it's a struggle for all of us. And when Jesus says, uh, what's going on, the heart counts too, suddenly, there's not too many of us who can cast a stone. We all go, oh, we all need to repent. In fact, when you see more perversion and sort of sickness in people's sexuality in the world, it's a call to the church to repent for our own sin. Because what we hope for, we hope for, is that somebody who's, they're, they're trying, they've got like, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places, disease or whatever. They're trying, trying, trying to fill an emptiness in their own heart. And here's the church going, whoa, we, we actually have access to the soul-satisfying uh, relationship that you can have with Christ. We should be desiring for that for them. But you know what? It's going to be an enormous death to self for a lot of people to throw the shackles of that life off. And let's say they walk into church and they're like, oh, I'm coming to Jesus. I'm finally finding the, the thing that will satisfy my soul. And they find a lot of people in here who are just sort of like, oh, yeah, following Jesus. Yeah, I guess we sort of do that. Not too passionately. We're not too committed. They say, well, I had to give up my whole life. I gave up my partner. I gave up my friend group. I gave up my lifestyle. I gave up things I habitually did regularly. I gave up everything. And what have you given up? Oh, not too much. That, that's not a match. What they should find is when they come into the church, they find people who are hot for God in their repentance for their own sin. So that we're really great walking partners with them. So it's like, I've repented of so much. So have I. I'm repenting daily, praying for God's grace daily. So am I. I need God every minute, every hour to walk this walk. So do I. Then you can link arms pretty good. Because you can say, we're the same. Sin has broken us in the area of sexuality. And we're all crying out to God for him to help us. We realize his righteous requirements. We realize he's right about what he, what he requires. And we're all crying out 
for his mercy. So, true disciples not only shun physical acts of adultery, but are so completely committed to God's purpose for marriage that they have eyes and hands not only for a spouse, or only for a spouse, and discipline their thoughts and actions to be singly focused on the spouse. That's just a quote I read, and I thought that was really helpful. That, that they're so committed. So here's this next verse. This is where it gets a little weird. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Now, if you're, if you're an English major or you just remember stuff from school, you remember the term hyperbole? Hyperbole? You know what I mean? Who says, no, I'm not going to ask you to define it because you, you, you think you know what a hyperbole is. Let me give you some hyperboles. You can finish them. I think Jesus is using hyperbole here. He uses it in other places, right? And a hyperbole is this. It's a figure of speech that uses extreme exaggeration to make a point or show emphasis. So it's like the opposite of understatement. It's like overstatement. Right? And it was a technique Jesus used. Um, one of the ones that I'm very, like I've used it lots of time in sermons is uh, you should hate your father and mother. Now you say that's the opposite of everything else Jesus taught. Yes, in that context, when he said that, he was making a radical comparison to your love and loyalty for him. He's saying, I want your love and loyalty to me to be so great that when you look at all your other relationships, even the ones that you treasure the most, that your love and loyalty for me will be greater. So he uses an extreme example to make a powerful point. He's doing that here too, I believe. And I'm not just me, but other scholars I've read, and they said that this is hyperbole. But you know what a hyperbole is, right? I told you to clean your room how many times? A million times. I'm so hungry I could eat a hyperbole. You guys are full of hyperbole. When I was young, I had to walk how many miles to school? (laughs) <laughs> uphill both ways, right, in the snow up to my neck. How much homework do I have? I have a, a ton of homework. If I can't buy that perfect prom dress, I'll, I'll die. <laughs> All the women knew the answer. The guys are like, what? He's as skinny as a, a rail. Oh, I thought you might say toothpick. That rail's better. We're so poor, we didn't, we were so poor, we didn't have two, two cents to rub together. That joke is so old, the last time I heard it, I was riding a dinosaur, riding a dinosaur, okay. (laughs) You could have knocked me over with a, yes. None of those are truthful statements on the face of them. All of them are hyperbole to make a point. I believe that's what Jesus says about the guy. What is Jesus saying with the gouge out the eye, the cut off the hand? He's saying, deal drastically with this in your life or it will get away on you. This is really important. Deal ruthlessly, not just with adultery, but with adulterous thoughts. Right? What's that? Oh, my notes are all in a jumble this morning. What is it? You sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow, I'm just trying to do this by memory now. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a lifestyle. You sow a lifestyle, you reap a destiny. I think that's the progression, right? It's like, but they're just fantasy thoughts. They're just 
That won't lead to anything else. But it does. It does. As you think, so you are. It becomes uh, the way that you act in your life. And it will start to leak. I think that's one of the great lies that we come to believe, that we can have hidden things, secret things. They won't affect any other area of my life as long as I keep it to myself. Guess what? It leaks. It leaks. If you're thinking it, you'll start, it'll start showing up ever so slightly in the beginning, but in a greater and greater measure in your actions. And so he doesn't just go, commandment number seven, don't act. He goes, commandment number ten, now Let's deal about the heart. Let's deal with the mind. Let's deal with the thoughts. Let's deal with what's there. Because those will turn into intentions that will, will turn into action. So how, what does it look like to uh, deal ruthlessly with adulterous thoughts? Um, I struggled a little bit with even presenting this message. When I saw the passage and realized that's what I was going to be talking on, I thought, man, this sermon is going to be uh, not nearly as effective as some of the other things we've been offering. Like, we just did a 10 weeks in the Conquer series. Uh, it's, a, it's a 10 week series on sexual purity for men. And we, it's the second year we've run it. It's amazing. It's amazing, amazing, amazing. And then I thought, compared to that, to do a one hit wonder sermon, oh my goodness, I'm offering mild help. But you want medium? Or you want more? I think the Conquer series is a must-do for every man. Now, we've had a lot of guys go through it. I don't know, maybe 50, 60, 70. I don't know what the total number is of guys who've gone through the Conquer series now. It's amazing because it really teaches you about how your brain has become wired so that you're actually making bad choices, not because you're considering and plotting out a bad course. You're making it automatically because your brain is firing on certain stimulus. Now, you know, the course deals with lots of things. One of the things the course deals with is, is the problem of pornography that we have in this world today. And that it's, it isn't just that, you know, oh, I think I'm going to do this. It's that we have certain stimulus that triggers stuff because we've developed a pattern. And it's a really hard pattern to break. And so that's why I despaired when I thought, I'm only going to get one crack at this, and then I'm going to move on to the next topic because I thought it's not enough. So I just want to tell you, getting teaching that addresses, you know, what's sin and what's not sin, it's helpful. It's good. It needs to be shared. But you know what? I think most of us living today, an image-driven, sexually obsessed culture, it's super hard to remain sexually pure in this culture. It is. I mean, some people might get through their whole life and obey the seventh commandment. But obeying the tenth commandment, like, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Oh. I think we need the best help we can possibly get. The best tools, the best training, I think when Jesus said, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, he's not saying, hey, yeah, maybe you need to sort of pay attention. No, deal ruthlessly with this area. Because if you get healthy in this area, it will bring health to others. It will bring health to many. 
I mean, not, I'm not just talking about marriages. I'm talking about kids. I'm talking about how you interact with the opposite gender and your same gender. I'm talking about serious health in relationships. So I'm just thrilled, absolutely thrilled to be in a church where we've had so many men take it seriously. I think they're doing what Jesus is urging those first century followers to do. Take this very seriously. Do whatever it takes to get healthy in this area. And to stay healthy in this area. To stay healthy in this area. So, today I might be giving you a shot in the arm and that's all you needed. Great. If you need more, we'll again in the future, we'll offer the Conquer series. I don't, we haven't got that all locked down when it's going to be, but we will offer it again. Uh, you want even more than that? There's a follow-up to the Conquer series called Seven Pillars. And it's like, it's like 35 weeks of just guys going together and in a group and just really uh, nailing this area of life, getting it so good. So that's another thing. And there's, there's resources for women too. Now we're still, we haven't rolled all those out yet, but we're still working on figuring out what fits and what's good for Hillcrest and what we need now and who can lead it. There's all those things yet to figure out. But I just think that in this battle that we're in, in this culture that nobody can avoid... We should fight as effectively and as ruthlessly as we can. I'm glad that so many are already doing that. And some of you are fighting, but you haven't fought with anybody yet. You haven't invited anyone into joining you in the battle. And I'm just saying, there's lots of guys who are already doing that. And there are some women who are already doing that, and there'll probably be more in the future. So I want to give you hope. That it's not just your struggle. It's not just my struggle. We're all, we, all, we all have the same battle to fight. And Jesus presents it so well. Let's be ruthless in that fight that we make. So those who follow Jesus are called to extraordinary efforts to be faithful in their actions and faithful in their heart. You think about, I think about examples in the Bible of people with extraordinary action. Joseph in the Old Testament, great example. He's a slave living in a house. The woman of the house, Potiphar's wife, sees that he's good-looking. That's what the scripture says. He's good-looking and he's got a good body. That's, read the scriptures. That's exactly what it says. She's sexually attracted to him. And because she's in a position of authority over him as the mistress of the house you know, or the woman of the house, she... He says, come, lie with me, come sleep with me. And he's like, no, no, I can't do that, I can't do that. She relentlessly tries to seduce him again and again and again and again and again. And the story that, you know, probably you would, if you do remember anything about the story, it's the story of she catches him alone inside the house once. And she goes out to reach for him and he, she grabs his, his outer garment. And he is so like getting out of there that he just strips it off and bolts. I mean, he would have had clothes on underneath, but he just bolts, right? Of course, he gets accused, all the whole story. But it's just like in the New Testament, you see the disciples teaching the early churches to flee from fornication. I bet when they heard that, they all thought of Joseph because a lot of them were Jewish, right? So they would go, oh, yeah, run like Joseph. Run like When you get in temptation's path, just bolt out of there. Just get away. Just do whatever it takes. Deal ruthlessly. With, ever, with whatever you're facing. So 
I want to give you some really practical advice as we close our message here today. Practical advice and then a scripture and we'll be done. I want you to be able to spot the warning signs of adultery. Most times when someone gets into an affair, it's done with someone that they've known for at least a month and with, and with whom they've had multiple interactions. So here's some warning signs. So this is what, if you see these things, you can stop something way in advance, okay? So you really look forward to seeing this person. They're not your spouse, but you really look forward to seeing this person. You're willing to go out of your way to make sure you have regular interactions with them. You rearrange your calendar to find ways to sneak more time in with that person, like early morning meetings or long lunches or late evenings or more. You're growing increasingly critical of your own spouse, especially as compared to the other someone special. You're looking for reasons to be out of the presence of your spouse. Your recreational life becomes more and more exclusive of your spouse. Your desire to be intimate physically or emotionally with your spouse is dwindling. If you see any of those warning signs, those things starting to develop in your life, here's, I'm going to give you three things to do. Number one is cut the relationship off. Now, it might be you can actually just fully do that. If you work with them, you go to school with them, they're part of your church family or whatever, that might be impossible. But you can still cut it off emotionally. Cut off anything that resembles emotional intimacy. When you start to realize, when you start to understand. From, you say, I'm far away from something happening. Good. That's the time to take action. It's the easiest time to take action. Second is get help. Find someone who will encourage growth in your life, good growth in your life, and growth in your relationship with your spouse. You know, make sure you pick the right person to get help from, right? Most, uh, they say that three-quarters of men that had an affair had a friend who had, the, who had an affair. So if you want someone to give you advice in your posse, pick somebody who's faithful. It was a great example will fold your feet to the fire and will will love you enough to tell you the truth. So, I love Proverbs 13:20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companions of fools will suffer harm. Pick pick well when it comes to getting help. So, identify maybe you need to identify a person you can call in the middle of the night and tell them, "I think my heart is starting to wander." And I want to stop it now before it goes any further. So cut the relationship off, get help, and then renew your commitment to a happy marriage. When you perceive there's a lack of um, all the things that, you know, people usually want in marriage, you know, the, you know you're feeling appreciated, respected, valued, uh, feeling heard, loved, cherished, all those things that we often, you know, we want in marriage. When you perceive a lack of those things in your own marriage, be willing to pray together. Go to counseling, read books, attend workshops, seminars. Sit down with your pastor, whatever it takes in order to rekindle your own passion in your marriage. Because people don't fall out of love. They fall out of repentance and forgiveness. Recognize your own, and, the, and I've said this at the beginning, but I'll say it again. Repent, recognize your own propensity to sin and have a plan 
to deal with it in the moment it rears its ugly head and stand strong in your commitment to your spouse. This is the advice I'd give to idealistic, young, premarital couples. I'd say, when you get, if you get, when your mind starts saying, I wonder what it would be like if, right? Adultery of the heart, right? When that starts to form in a seed form, I wonder what it would be like to be married to them. When you're struggling and you're not taking those thoughts captive, but you're actually letting them linger for a while, you're ruminating on them a little bit, then cut it off, get help, and engage more with your spouse. You say, whoa, well, start, time to start date nights again. It's time to make sure that's a priority. It's time to make sure I'm as healthy as I can possibly be. I'm going to end with reading Proverbs chapter 5. This has been a, it's been a heavy message. I, I still appreciate you keep coming to church even when I bring heavy messages. I bring these for, out of love, really. I want to see you thrive. I want to see you grow. I want your marriage to be rock solid. I want you good. I want good for you. This, this is Proverbs chapter 5. It's exactly what we're talking about. And it's a, basically an older man speaking to a younger man about this whole area. And so I'm going to just read it to you, and then we're going to pray at the end. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear towards my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips, now he's talking about this seductress woman in, the, in this tale, but it will go on. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, or she may seem to. And her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as gall. A gall. If you're a woman, you have to just reverse the whole story, Right? There's some guy who's dripping honey, honey from his lips and his speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she or he is as bitter as gall, as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. We've already talked about that. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets let your, or your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone. I love this because it's a beautiful phrase for a husband and wife. Let them be yours alone. Just you. Nobody else. Oh, it's awesome. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. Yes, that's actually in the text. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. 
Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. You want to stand with me? I know it's a sober message. I don't think Jesus had a laugh track when he did that part of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think he told a lot of jokes when he was saying, this is a serious problem. My friend Joyce uh, served as a missionary in Dominica, not the Dominican Republic, Dominica, a little island, no tourists. And, you know, that's where she served uh, with YWAM for several years. The men on the island had a reputation And it was not for being faithful to their wives. And what Joyce would do every day, she would go to the market, was she would see these men she would know, uh, you know, through, you know, just interactions and stuff like that. And she would say, uh, how are you today, man of God? How are you today, man of God? She said this to the different men of the village. How are you today, man of God? Well, this one man, she met many times on the road, and she kept saying that to him every day. How are you today, man of God? How are you today, man of God? How are you today? Finally, he took her aside one day, and he said, Oh, Joycey, Joycey, if you knew, if you knew what I even did last night, you would never call me a man of God. And she just defiantly, she's short, she's really short, this would be a big guy. She just defiantly said to him, I'm not talking about your present behavior. I'm talking about your future. Weeks later, he came back to her and he said, you think I can be a man of God? And she said, I believe it with all my, with all my being. He said, I want to be a man of God. I want to be a man of God. Teach me how. When you hear, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not have adulterous thoughts, you might feel just, oh, the condemnation, the weight, I could never measure up. I want to tell you, because of Jesus, all those statements turn from being commands you can't fulfill to a picture of your future that God wants to assist you in becoming. So it's not, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's like, because of Jesus, hey, thou shall not commit adultery. It's not, thou shalt not have any adulterous thoughts. Shame on you. It's because of Jesus, a picture of your future. Thou shalt not have adultery. You'll be free. You'll be free. You'll be set free. This won't be your habit. This won't be your addiction. This won't be your destiny. Sexual purity can be yours because of Jesus. And that's the hope that we all share. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are for us, not against us. And even when we're in our sin and and indifferent towards you and stubbornly resisting you, there's a compassion in your heart for us. You don't love our sin. You know it's killing us. But you love us. You love us. You see that sin has broken us in so many areas of our lives, including sexuality, And you see that area of our life and you long to get in there to begin to mend and heal. And so, God, we just thank you for that posture. 
we're not as merciful and compassionate as you are. But you're incredible in this way. And so, God, we just thank you that when you see us struggling, you don't heap shame on top of us. The enemy's doing that double time. But you don't do that. You reach down into that pit of shame and you grab our hand to pull us out. And so, God, we just thank you so much that it, at the end of the day, it's not going to be us parading how good we were and how we behaved like the Pharisees before God. We're all going to recognize that we needed the mercy of God because we were sinners. We're all going to be recognizing your greatness. In fact, we're not even in your presence. We won't be focused on ourselves at all. We're going to be focused on you because you're a great forgiver. You're a great healer. You're a great transformer. You see us in our sin, and you say, that's not the end of the story. No matter how much we've struggled, you say, that's not the end of the story. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to give you a spiritual family around you. And in the future, I've got a destiny that's way, way better. So, God, I thank you for the hope that you speak into all of our lives, no matter where we are. You speak incredible hope into our lives, and you pull us out of the pit of shame. So, Lord, we just, we just want to hold on to you. We want to recognize you. We want to fix our eyes on you, not ourselves. Our track record isn't that great. Your track record is perfect. And that's the track record that you're exchanging with us. You're willing to exchange us at the cross. You took the blame and the shame so we could have the forgiveness and the righteousness. So we just honor you today. We honor you today. We honor you today. We can't do it. We're like that tax collector on our knees. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And the good news is you do have mercy on us. More mercy than the endless list of our sin. More grace than all of that. And you pour it out every day. And we thank you for your posture towards us. It's not deserved. It's an incredible gift in our lives. And we praise you, Lord, again and again and again for what you do in our lives. So, Lord, I pray that each one who goes out of here today would have eyes fixed on you and trusting you. Not just trusting your sexual ethic, although we want to do that, but trusting you for who you are as a person and your interaction in our lives. Let our eyes be fixed on you and not on ourselves. And at the end of the day, we'll give you all the glory in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, I just thank you for engaging with me on this message, a particularly tough one. Thank you. At the end of the service, we have prayer. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's not usual. Uh, <laughs> but thank you. At the end of the service, we do have uh, prayer teams up here. If you want someone to pray with you, we'd love to pray with you. Absolutely love to pray with you. So please take that time to do that. We're going to have one more song, and then we're going to be officially dismissed. So God bless you. Thanks for coming out.